Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel, and I'm also the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I'm very happy to say that today we have Aram Gudsuzian on the show. He's been on the show before. Today we'll be talking about his book, Down to the Crossroads, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Meredith March Against Fear. This book has some of the most fascinating people in it I've ever read about. James Meredith is one of them, but Stokely Carmichael makes an appearance, and he's somebody that I think is very, very interesting, and I hope we get to talk about him, and I'm sure that we will. But before we do anything, let us welcome Aram to the show. Aram, thank you for being on. Hey, Marshall. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Could you kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am now the chair of the Department of History at the University of Memphis. For your uh, sins, you're the chair of... <laughs> and I uh, started uh, that job this summer, and it is uh, definitely a new challenge, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, I've been at the University of Memphis now for uh, almost 10 years, uh, and I teach courses in modern U.S. history, and the civil rights movement, African-American history, U.S. history surveys, and I teach a lot of uh, courses in our graduate. I'm originally from the uh, Boston area, uh, which fed my last book. The last time we talked was uh, about uh, a book about Bill Russell, uh, the basketball player and the civil rights icon. Mm-hmm. And... This is this new book is kind of a departure for me in the sense that I, while I've written about African American history and I've written about the 1960s before in my previous work, uh, this is my first order of traditional uh, political history to a, to a degree with the civil rights movement mm-hmm. uh, and telling this very uh, in some ways well known story uh, about the Meredith March, but also a story that I hope I've uncovered some new dimensions. Of. Mm-hmm. Well, you have the Good Susie, and that's an Armenian name, right? It is. It is. So, how did an Armenian kid from Boston get into African American history? That's a good question. Uh, and, I, <laughs> you know, like, and it wasn't like I set out uh, early in my life thinking that I was going to write African-American history. Yeah. I, I sort of came to it through almost through some of my other interests as well. Uh, and the Russell book brought those together. I was always interested in Ford history because I, I, you know, sports dominates our existence in so many ways, and yet it receives so little scholarly attention. And it's always something I've been interested in. And more generally in the history of popular culture in America and also writing about this, this more modern era in American history. So that drove me into more and more interest and fascination uh, with African-Americans. And I'm just trying to wrestle with this question of you know what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a citizen of the United States? Mm-hmm. That's what really got, pulled me into African-American history because uh, you know, to use the John Hope Franklin's phrase, they're the mirror to America, yeah. uh, that, they are, uh, that their plight is is important, just or central, really, to understanding American history as a whole. So that was the always the approach that I brought to it. I know that other people have come to it, in, you know, in very different ways, and I think there's room for all sorts of approaches in terms of in terms of how we sort of come to the subject. Why did you write uh, down to the crossroads? Good question. I I came to it really. I think where I you know coming to Memphis uh, and being close to where that story was, and second, teaching a lot of uh, courses. Uh, on the civil rights movement and especially the graduate courses where I was reading all these sort of new and interesting approaches to the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, people who focus on, in particular on local history, others who really are considering uh, black power as something other than just simply sort of a demon that destroyed the civil rights movement. Uh, others writing in, in sort of an international framework. Others really focused on issues of gender. Um, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which a generation, or maybe you could say two generations of civil rights historians have complicated sort of a classic story of civil rights history. But at the same time, uh, sort of being grounded in, uh, you know, the more, especially teaching the undergraduate courses, being grounded in some of the sort of classic civil rights history that, that we've taught to our students. So the sort of the simplistic story I tell, it's not, it's not a direct line, but a friend of mine called me, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago. He was at the Strand Bookstore in, uh, in New York, Union Square. 83 miles of books. <laughs> exactly. They have some and he's, yeah. you know, he's, he's in the civil rights section, and he's not a historian. He's a, he's a scientist, but he's a, he's a guy who likes to read. And, and he just called me from there, and he said, hey, I, I want to read a book about the civil rights movement. What book should I read? And it was kind of a daunting <laughs> question because you know, there's massive biographies of Martin Luther King, and there's textbooks, and I, I don't think he wanted to read a textbook. So obviously I, I'm not trying to say that my book is the only book you should read about the civil rights movement, but I tried to frame it when I, I – sort of conceived of the idea is that if you were going to read one book about the civil rights movement and you wanted to read something that was a story, something that pulled you along, mm-hmm. this might be the kind of book that, that you would want to read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
so I brought to it both sort of that academic dimension uh, of trying to sort of synthesize these, uh, the sort of the, the modern scholarship on the civil rights movement into more of a classic narrative story. Mm-hmm. So I, sometimes I call it the old civil rights history and the new civil rights history. I've tried to fuse the two to, to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Movie rights? Uh, I've had some discussions <laughs> about a documentary movie. I don't yeah, know, but I don't know about a, uh, about a, uh, <laughs> Hollywood blockbuster. I'm glad about yeah. that. Yeah. So, um, this is a book ostensibly about a, a march, one march among very, very many. And it occurs in, I think it's 1966, right? In the summer mm-hmm. of yep. 1966. June of 66. Yeah. And and, so, and, it, and and it's led by it's James Meredith, right? And James mm-hmm. Meredith is most famous for something else. And, and mm-hmm. that, and that is that, um, the, the, uh, that he was the first African-American student at the university of Mississippi, right? Mm-hmm. Old Miss. Yeah. Uh, and and I I didn't really know that he had participated in this march, but I'm not a historian of this era. So c- can you tell us a little bit about Meredith and sort of set the stage for the march before we talk about what 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 happens mm-hmm. and how it is a pivotal moment because that really sure. is the thesis of the book. Mm-hmm. So James Meredith grew up in Mississippi. He grew up in a small town called Kosciuszko, uh, in sort of the hill country of Mississippi, uh, but grew up in a very sort of uh, with a unique upbringing for an African American. Uh, his father owned land, his father, father, father was registered to vote, and sort of taught his children that they were sort of set apart, special, and in, well, really tried to insulate them from the white community. Um, so he had this almost like a conservative aspect to him from, from an early aspect in his life. Uh, he saw himself as as uh, uh, trying to sort of, when he, stayed, when he was fighting against white supremacy, he was fighting on an individual level as much as a collective level. Uh, and he didn't really, he never really saw himself as part of a larger movement. Uh, at the same time, he really believed that he had the, the special destiny. Uh, he, he used the phrase divine responsibility a lot. So he had almost like a, a messiah uh, aspect, a messiah complex. Mm-hmm. Um, he serves in the military in the 1950s, he's in the Air Force uh, for a long period of time. Uh, and he returns to Mississippi, uh, intent on sort of, you know, sort of staking his claim as a, as a real U.S. citizen, just as the Civil Rights Movement is kicking off. Uh, and he does it as an individual. He applies to Ole Miss, and and he uh, just and it ends up launching a, a big court challenge. But it starts with Meredith himself just simply applying to Ole Miss and determining that he wants to go there. It leads to in 1962 this big constitutional crisis: Is the federal government going? Do they have to protect one man's uh, right to go to the University of Mississippi? Uh, at first, they don't, and it leads to violence. There's there's a, a great mob develops there. White supremacists are arriving from all around the country. Uh, the upshot is that two people die and many people are injured uh, in the midst of this violence. And James Meredith needs protection from uh, federal officials for his entire year at the University of Mississippi. He only needs one year there before he can graduate. So he graduates in 1963. But then Meredith is sort of struggles to find his place. Uh, he, he is uh, sort of consumed with the, with the notion of the civil rights movement, but doesn't see himself as part of it. He's a critic of nonviolence, people like Martin Luther King for... Uh, exposing women and children to violence, uh, that he thinks that the only way the black people will really get respect is uh, to use force because we're a militaristic nation, uh, and this come growing a lot of it is growing out of his experience in the military. Uh, but he can't really find what it is that he wants to do. Really, he moves to Washington D.C. for a while. He accepts a fellowship to Nigeria uh, to study there, postgraduate work. But then he abandons it after one year. He moves back to New York. Uh, and he enrolls in Columbia Law School, but he has an eye on Mississippi politics. So in June of 1966, he launches this, what he calls a walk against fear, not a march, because he sees it as sort of a single man's endeavor, um, to walk from Memphis, Tennessee, to Jackson, Mississippi. It's about 220 miles down Highway 51. Um, and in doing so, he, he names two main goals. One is to encourage African Americans to register to vote. It's a year after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, and there's finally seeing a, a slight uptick in terms of African-American voting registration patterns. And the other is, is, to, is to conquer what he calls a, a culture of fear. Uh, and that's obviously connected to the first issue of voting rights, that he wants uh, black people to be able to sort of stand up for themselves and to, and to reject the intimidation that they face from whites. So if they can see James Meredith, who is, to what people, perhaps the most hated man in Mississippi, right. if they can see James Meredith walking down a road, uh, for 220 miles and, you know, sort of coming to him and, and uh, supporting him, then that might buoy, buoy their spirits and, and, and uh, encourage them uh, to assert their rights as well. 
This is the idea behind it. Mm-hmm. There's also sort of a, another motivation that he wants to further his political career as well. His, he envisions the idea that he'll make a lot of political contacts along the way, that it'll reestablish his name in Mississippi, and that by the time he finishes the March of Jackson, he'll have established a political base in about half the state. Mm-hmm. 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 And so what he, he really, this is an amazing thing. And mm-hmm. so he, he was thinking, this was a, I don't want to be cynical about it, because mm-hmm. right, I'm sure he was a true believer, but it was, a, it was an effort to launch his political career. To a certain extent, yes. I mean, there's a there's a um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a positive aspect to it in, in the in the sense of the of the larger realm, but there is a, a personal aspect to it as well. And those two things, as yeah. he sees it, are are absolutely interconnected. And this sort of goes to his to his vision, right? His idea of having a divine responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And did people counsel him as to whether to do this? Because it would be obviously dangerous, right? Am I wrong? That it, oh, it's absolutely dangerous. dangerous. Yeah, as, right. as, his, as the historical events were. Right. I mean, will people say out. you really shouldn't do this. <laughs> I mean, if you do do it, you need protection and so on and so forth. And what did he say? So he never asked the federal government for protection. What he does do is, and he does this with almost like a blind faith in Mississippi, he, uh, that he writes to the governor and he writes to various sheriffs of, of the counties in which he's going to pass and says, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm, I'm going to come through. I would like your protection. He basically gets ignored by nine of the ten sheriffs. One yeah. of them writes back to him and says, mm-hmm. "Sure, we'll protect you." Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 end result of it is that he there is some protection for him, but he doesn't he doesn't particularly ask for it. Uh, and there are a few people who march with him, uh, and he says, "You know, people are welcome to join me, but it's got to be men. They got to be independent. Uh, they got to be willing to take care of themselves. This isn't the, a mass march like Birmingham or Selma, right. where we're going to impose on a local community, where it's going to be a big media show." Uh, that's not that's not what he sees as his main agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he starts the march, and he's with a few people, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, how does it go? Uh, so the first day of the march, he leaves Memphis and he walks to the state border, and they face some harassment. And what day was that? I can't remember. It was uh, uh, he starts on June five. June five. Yeah. Okay. So the next day is uh, is a Monday, and it's the first day really in Mississippi. The first uh, the first town that you encounter if you walk down Highway fifty one is Hernando small town and, and he gets a very nice reception there's about 150 black people who uh, receive him there and they cheer for him and they encourage they tell him that they're going to vote and you know there's a crowd of hostile whites across the way who are watching this happen and so meredith is very proud right he's, he's like yeah I'm, I'm achieving my mission here mm-hmm. he continues his march southward he's about a few miles south of hernando and what happens there's a man emerges from the side of the, from the side of the road shoots him three times uh, use birdshot, which fires you know small little pellets. Yeah. Uh, and so Meredith isn't killed, but he's but he's very severely wounded. He has about sixty birdshot pellets that are lodged in his back, in his neck, in his head, uh, and he needs immediate medical attention. Right, but as but as somebody who has some experience with shooting birds with birdshot, that could kill you. That, that, this is this is very dangerous. It's not. Uh, yeah, that will kill you. <laughs> and it, this this, also, this becomes very interestingly an important controversy about sort of what the birdshot means because the guy who shoots him is a guy named Aubrey Norville. He's he's uh, still alive today. Still lives in the same house that he did uh, then. He he lives in a subdivision outside of Memphis, and he had no known connection to any white supremacist organization like the Ku Klux Klan or whatsoever. His neighbors and so on said they, you know, they weren't sure. He never talked about the civil rights movement. So they were, it was unclear why he did this. Uh, and he re- has refused to, to name his motive since then. He pl- ultimately pled guilty, spent a couple of years in prison, uh, but has never really revealed his motive. So the interesting part about this, because he shot him with birdshot, on the one hand, civil rights activists are saying, oh, this guy's you know, a typical racist, typical white southerner, maybe even had the Mississippi police in on it because they didn't pr- because while they were patrolling Meredith's march, they didn't stop this guy from shooting him. It, it seemed odd. like they let, him, they let it happen. Right. But on the other side, white segregationists are saying, oh, the civil rights movement must have paid someone to shoot James <laughs> Meredith and just wound him with his birdshot because that'll start this whole to-do, right? And it does start a big to-do in the yeah. sense of Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael and Ford McKissick and Roy Wilkins and Whitney Young. The giants of the civil rights movement are coming right. to take up Meredith's march. Now, Obviously, that would be a it would be a very dumb conspiracy if that was the case. Yeah, not true. yeah. But but the consistency of that rhetoric that is constantly in the Mississippi papers that you hear politicians talking about, oh, this was you know obviously some sort of put up job is uh, it's amazing to to go back and read. Them. Yeah, yeah, it is amazing. You're right, but um, it has again, as you say, it would be an odd conspiracy because the uh, shooting itself made it a a, a national issue, mm-hmm. and then pretty much everybody flies in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you talk about the convergence of these civil rights leaders and and, and their interaction? Sure. Well, 
Yeah. And it's important. It's important to sort of set the stage, I guess, in terms of where we are at in the civil rights movement. Yeah, I was hoping we could do that. Yeah, uh, because uh, on the one hand, you've got uh, groups like the NAACP and the Urban League that are sort of see want to sort of advance their agenda and, and have developed solid relationships with Lyndon Johnson and, and the federal government. Uh, and and there's a civil rights bill that's on the table in '66 that uh, people have forgotten about that was included a whole number of things, things to help with uh, jury trials and uh, and housing uh, uh, and housing discrimination and so on. It was a pretty comprehensive civil rights bill that was then on the table. Uh, so they see this as a great lobbying tool. They think, oh, this will help us pass the civil rights bill, just like uh, Selma had helped pass the Voting Rights Act the year before. Uh, and then you've got uh, Martin Luther King and his group, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which are in the midst at that point of trying to organize a big campaign in Chicago. They're trying to take the tactics of nonviolence and apply them to this, to the issues of uh, of uh, class, really, on a, in a big northern city in Chicago. So they're really concerned with issues of poverty and trying to sort of broaden the discussion of civil rights. And then you've got groups like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, and the Congress Racial Equality Corps uh, that have really be, uh, drifted sort, sort of to the militant edge of the movement. Uh, SNCC has always been especially sort of on the vanguard of the movement, dating back to the sins of 1960, but by 66, they're trying to sort of grapple with some new questions as to who they are as an organization, uh, they are frustrated with, in particular, what they see as the very slow pace of reform on a federal level. Yeah, these laws have been passed, but they're not being enforced very well yet. Uh, and they're very frustrated with what they see as a very tenuous alliance with white liberals who abandoned them, uh, you know, in sort of in their time of need. Uh, so they, uh, so there are uh, people like Stokely Carmichael, who's the new chairman of SNCC. He's made his name in Lowndes County, Alabama, where he's developed or he's organized a, a political party that was a third party. Rather than integrate into the Democratic Party, which is basically a white supremacist party in Alabama, he figures, let's, let's start our own party and create a black power base. And he's just starting to do that in Alabama. And he sees that as the vision uh, of, for where black politics needs to go, whether it's the rural black belt or whether it's uh, uh, northern cities or what have you, wherever uh, African-Americans are a potential majority, they need to organize into independent parties uh, and then leverage their power in that way. Uh, and he's also adopting a more confrontational uh, style, just in terms of in terms of rhetoric and in terms of challenging the white establishment. So these are all the groups that are coming to Memphis, giving speeches, meeting in the Lorraine Motel, the the same motel where two years later Martin Luther King will meet his demise. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're meeting in in the Lorraine Motel, uh, in King's room, no less, uh, basically trying to determine the future of, of the march. And what the key aspect here is that SNCC, in particular, is able to drive out. Uh, the NAACP and the Urban League, uh, Roy Wilkins and uh, and Whitney Young, the two leaders of those organizations, basically after the first day of marching, basically decided that SNCC is, is going to be impossible to work with. They've developed this manifesto that's exceptionally critical of the federal government, uh, so they back out. So that leaves Martin Luther King as sort of the key moderating force on the march. So in my book, I, I sort of see that it's revolving in some ways around three main characters, James Meredith, Sophie Carmichael, Martin Luther King. Uh, that said, there's a massive cast of characters from national figures to local people, everything in between uh, that, that populate the book as well. Mm-hmm. So but Meredith is in the hospital, right? Yeah. At this point, Meredith is in the hospital and exceptionally frustrated. Uh, on the one hand, the march is continuing, and he gives us his, sort of his blessing because, you know, uh, you know they have the, he basically says they have the right to do what they want. But he won't sign his name to any document affiliated with the march. He won't, at the beginning, he won't march or he won't be wheeled along in a wheelchair symbolically for a little while uh, at the head of the march. Uh, and he basically says, you know, you guys do what you're going to do. But he's, but he's critical of it because he says now it's become the, what he didn't want. It's become a mass march mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's going to impose on the local community. He's got all sorts of problems with it. Right. There's another problem with it, of course, is that people are marching in his name and he has no control over what's being now called the Meredith March through Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, or the Meredith March against fear. Yeah. Well, so that I want to keep taking steps backward just so we can contextualize what, what happens next. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to anachronistically set these two things off against one another, but I do want to make sure, because this is a focal point of the book, that, that that there is a difference, and it's a growing difference, and that is between the tactics of King, whose motto is freedom now, mm-hmm. I think, and then the tactics of Carmichael and Snick, whose uh, motto uh, is, is becomes black power later. Mm-hmm. So can, can you talk about, uh, we know a lot about King. Can you talk a little bit more about the evolution of the notion of black power? power there's sure. no there's no black panther party at this time right it doesn't develop until a bit later so uh, is that right 
That is true. So yeah, okay. uh, Carmichael's p- party in Alabama was called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, yeah. but, but they had as their symbol a Black Panther. Oh, really? So okay, their yeah, nickname right. at the time right. was the Black yeah. Panther Party. This is a this is a party in Alabama. Right. That is dis- distinct from the Black Panther Party that develops in Oakland, which, Oakland, California, which is yeah. which is a case of which develops in the fall of 1966. And so it hasn't happened yet. That's Bobby happened. Seale and Huey Newton and other people exactly, that we know exactly, from. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, so Black Power. Is a slow. It's it. Those words. Snake has been using those words, and others have used those words as well. It's not like they they're the first to craft those two words. Uh, but with their, you know, they just recently had a had a sort of an organizational retreat that elected uh, Carmichael as chairman. And in Alabama, they were talking about the slogan of "Black Power for Black People." Uh, so the term had been sort of out there, had been percolating. Different organizers in different places uh, have been using that that the term as well. But what the Merit of the March did was it catapulted those words into a national slogan because they really unveiled it as a chant as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, about midway through the march, they're coming into Greenwood, Mississippi, which is sort of at the heart of the Delta. Or I should say the gateway of the, uh, to the Mississippi Delta, sort of a large, flat, cotton-producing way. And SNCC has a long history of organizing in Greenwood. They've been there since the early 1960s. Uh, during Freedom Summer in 1964, it was at the base of their operations, and Carmichael has tons of local connections there. He, was, uh, he, he oversaw the, the whole operation in the Delta during that time. Um, so that they very strategically choose to, when they get to Greenwood, uh, they end up holding a massive rally. There's about a thousand people there. And that's when black power gets unveiled as a slogan. What do you want? Black power. What mm-hmm. do you want? Black power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it immediately, and that launches it into the national consciousness. The media covers, it, uh, media covers it in a new way. And, and it, uh, so black power comes to be seen as this new direction in black politics among the, among, uh, the young militants in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what does the slogan mean? In some ways, it's connected to the larger strain of black nationalism, right? That dates back to the 19th century that you'd see in someone like Marcus mm-hmm. Garvey, that mm-hmm. you certainly see in Malcolm X, uh, who, who was assassinated the year before this march. Uh, and Malcolm X is a, is a hero to many of these young mil- young militants. Uh, so it certainly has elements of black nationalism, but it's also a, a sort of a specific to this era in the sense that it's growing out of the civil rights movement. It's growing out of the frustrations uh with, with the civil rights movement that I mentioned before, sort of the notion of the slow pace of legislative reform and actually that's actually changing things on the ground and, the, and these uh, frustrations with white liberals. SNCC itself has wrestled with the question of what to do with its white members. Uh, after Freedom Summer, there's a whole surge of white people who joined SNCC, but then the question was, is this still a black organization? And, and if, we're, if our goal is not to integrate into the fabric of American society, but rather to uplift black people, and, uh, then what does that mean? So they're wrestling with all these questions. Uh, but Black Power also has these very strong positive aspirations as well. Uh, the need for black people to take control of their own communities, uh, to, to sort of shed the yoke of paternalism to a certain degree, uh, to express pride in their history and their culture. These are all aspects of Black Power as well. And there's also an inter- you know, later, though, this in particular develops more of an international dimension to it as well, seeing the struggles of, uh, of dark-skinned people who are oppressed ac- uh, across the globe as sort of interlinked with each other. Mm-hmm. So these are all elements that, that, that sort of feed black power. But, you know, when pe- why do people start screaming back black power when he leads this chant? You can put it into sort of more basic terms. These are, these are people who are poor and they're black and they have no power. Mm-hmm. So it's a phrase that resonates with them, right? It's got sort of a, an emotional wallop to it uh, mm-hmm. that, that really. Uh, so later on in the march, King is, is recognizing that black power has become this great controversy and the media is blowing it up into something and is just associating it with violence and he's frustrated with that. He says, why don't we call it black consciousness or black equality? <laughs> and Carmichael and McKissick are basically like, no, you know, this, is, this, is, this is what, this is the phrase that is resonating with people, right? This is the phrase that means something. So we've mm-hmm. got to go with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess one question I have, and you, I don't know if you can answer it or not, but it seems to me, and this is from somebody who doesn't know a lot about the civil rights movement, as, mm-hmm. is that um, although the civil rights movement as led by King, and I don't know a lot about it before then, um, is, is about bringing equality to black people, that it has a kind of Christian understructure, mm-hmm. that it's, it's powerfully Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, black power removes that, doesn't it? It's it taken out of that Christian context entirely. Yes, uh, in the sense that you know, for King, he sees his mission as a minister as interlinked with, obviously, with his larger message of, of social justice. In fact, uh-huh. just before the Meredith March, on the, uh, the, the sermon he gives at Ebenezer Baptist, uh, the day that Meredith is starting his march, uh, is basically about the role of the minister. It's called it's a sermon called Guidelines for a Constructive Church. 
and he rejects the notion that a minister's job is to entertain or to or to or to make his congregation comfortable or to do anything like that. No, he sees it as you know helping the poor, helping the oppressed, and in any way that they can do that, that's important. Uh, so yes, I mean obviously that is feeding his entire uh, approach and ideology. And King's genius really is his ability to phrase to use this notion of Christian righteousness with the uh, with the notions with the rhetoric of American democracy, right? That he's able to try to bring those two yeah. together. Yeah. Uh, for most of the young militants, they tend to be more secular in outlook. Uh, they tend to sort of roll their eyes at this at this religious, uh, a king sort of you know, rolling, uh, sermonizing oratory. There's one story in uh, when the march is in Yazoo City, uh, and there's by this time the Black Power slogan's been unveiled and it's a big controversy, and uh, and you know they're sort of competing in their speeches uh, for for you know what the meaning of the march is, and at one point King is. is just delivering this very powerful speech, and one of the SNCC organizers rolls his eyes and yells out, "Blessed Jesus!" Like, like, you know, like, he's, like he's teasing him, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but then, but the, the the old black people from from the other city turn around and they just nod their heads. They're like, "Yes, <laughs> yes, he is." You know, so uh, you know they're reading him in very in very yeah, different ways. Right. That's funny. That's very funny. No, I just find that very interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that is not given enough, and, and this is sort of a digression, that is not emphasized enough in. Uh, let's call it artifacts and writings about King is the, is the degree to which he was really motivated by Christianity that he, he was doing God's work. And, but anyway, that's just my, I just, mm-hmm. my well, you know, the, so the, the big, the definitive one volume biography of King by David Garrow is called bearing the cross. There you uh, go. And, it, and it really is sort of, this, you know, that he, uh, it, it does sort of center around that notion. Yeah. Right. So at this point, the thing that is the, there is no black Panther party there. There is this black Panther symbol, but these people, uh, the, the, that is the, the, the that SNCC, it, it's not associated with a b- black nationalism, it's not anti-capitalist, it's not socialist, it's none of those things at this point, right? It is not in the way that it will become. And certainly, those those strains are, are are within SNCC from there, and there is a, a uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily define itself as such. And in fact, they 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 make they take pains to say the black power is not black nationalism during the march itself, right? Uh, even though it certainly has black nationalistic aspects, so black nationalism has been uh, sort of, I guess, tarred to a certain degree in the larger national conversation. So they're careful with that at first. Uh, it won't. It doesn't adopt all the dimensions that black power will adopt uh, as it goes forward. But, mm-hmm. but also, you got to think about black power in not just that radical, sensationalized way, but black power also means if if you're going by Carmichael's definition of sort of leveraging black majorities, that, that helps uh, elect black elected officials, right? And that helps elect the black mayor in Atlanta yeah. and Gary and Cleveland and, yeah. and all these places over the next over the next few years. So. Yeah. There's no, you know, black power means many different things to many different people, and there is no one definition. And the media wants to wants to nail down a definition from Carmichael, so he keeps going back to these, you know, to this this notion of black political power. But he also refuses to to sort of make to reassure the uh, the media, and in particular about violence, because they're always trying to sort of pin his feelings down on on is black power violent, mm-hmm. uh, and he just kind of refuses to answer the question because he. He's not saying it as a violent revolutionary, but he, but he also doesn't want to be cast as uh, in King's air of non or of nonviolence. Yeah. Basically, he's trying to assert a right to self defense, yeah. but he but he doesn't want to stop and and reassure people because he sees you know his, his job is to uplift black people and to and to bring them along. It's not to reassure whites. It strikes me as one of these cases where rhetoric is really powerful because Absolutely. that 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 expression "black power" is mm-hmm. going to get away from you. Mm-hmm. you. You can't control that thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, you know, it's ear candy and or it's frightening ear candy. I don't mm-hmm. know what that would be. Bad tasting ear candy for racists. <laughs> Boy, that metaphor really got away from me. But, <laughs> but you see what I mean? I mean, that expression, black power, that's going to that must have frightened the hell out of people. It did. I mean, yeah. and I, I mean, it, 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 it inspired people and it, and it scared people, uh, uh, depending on the audience. Right. Uh, that's people. Even, and for many white liberals, it made them exceptionally uneasy. And I should say, for some black liberals as well, they were afraid. What does you know? What does this mean? The it's not just the words, right? But it's how you're yeah. how you're presenting them. Right. Uh, right. So the rhetoric is 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 key here. Yeah, yeah. So we haven't talked about Stokely Carmichael at all. He's one of the most. Mm-hmm. Fa- I just think he's a very interesting fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, could you tell us his biography? Tell us a little bit about what brought him to this point. Sure. If you will. so, uh, he's born in Trinidad. Uh, comes to. Uh, Raised in New York for, for much of his life, he comes to New York. I want to say when he's seven years old, um, and he always is growing up in this somewhat uh, sort of bohemian radical milieu. He goes to uh, Bronx High School for Science, very prestigious school, uh, and he's uh, 
uh, and he's sort of around these many of these sort of white liberals and radicals, and, and so he's got this sort of political texture to him early on. Uh, then he enrolls at Howard University the, just at the beginning of the 1960s, and that's at a time when uh, when there's a group from Howard who are uh, forming a group called the uh, NAG, N-A-G, a nonviolent action group mm-hmm. that is basically like a, a an arm of SNCC, just as SNCC is getting formed too. And they're active in, the, in a movement uh, nearby in Cambridge, Maryland. And then, uh, then Carmichael goes south uh, with the Freedom Rides in 1961. Uh, and uh, he proves to be sort of a, a gifted organizer, uh, in particular in Mississippi in the early in the early 1960s. He, he has a gift for connecting with local people. He's the kind of guy who he has a real knack for knowing how to talk to different people. So you know, in, in a northern city, he's going to often present himself more as a cool intellectual. But you know, uh, old. Black women in Mississippi absolutely adore Stokely Garman. He, has, you know, he can be very polite and, and sort of a fake flirtation with them. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, he has a gift for connecting with, with people in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much shaped by uh, uh, sort of this international upbringing. He tends to, uh, and he's a philosophy major at Howard, so he's a very thoughtful uh, person. He's also the kind of person who uh, he has very, people are very, within the movement are, are very loyal to him. Uh, but for others, he just simply rubs them the wrong way. Uh, John Lewis, uh, I think as well, said that he either, uh, he, I can't remember the exact quote, but he either loved him or, 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 or he provoked you. There was no, there was no in between. Like he, you fell in one camp or another with Stokely Carmichael. Um, and he was always, he, you know, he, he used nonviolence as a tactic, of course, as part of Snake, but he was never someone who embraced it as a way of life. He, he never bought into sort of the, the larger king notion of a beloved community. Uh, so he's ideologically evolving over the course of the 1960s, but the roots of it are there in the early 60s. Uh, and so then, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, so I should say he's in he's in uh, Mississippi during Freedom Summer. He's among those uh, working for SNCC who are exceptionally disillusioned by what the, by the compromise at the Democratic National Convention in 1964. They'd organized their own independent party, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, because they weren't because they weren't able to register voters for the for the white supremacist all white Democratic Party. Uh, and then they sent those delegates to the convention, and the Democratic Party basically just offered them two at-large seats uh, and refused to uh, recognize them as the official delegation because they were trying to hold on to the to the, to the larger white delegation. They're afraid they'd walk out. So they go back to Mississippi, exceptionally disillusioned. They no longer you know want to work for reform on the federal level. They're disillusioned with Johnson, uh, and they and that that leads that drift into independent black politics for people like uh, Carmichael. So he leaves Mississippi. Goes to Alabama, and that's where he forms the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. Mm-hmm. But he makes his name on uh, in Lowndes County, especially, and that's what catapults him into the new chairmanship of SNCC in '66, right before the Meredith March, one month before the Meredith March. Right, right. Um, so he's saying. So there's some. He has a little bit of a profile before the march. You know, he's he's written an article. I think it's the New Republic, uh, the, in which he says integration is irrelevant, and then he's basically talking about some of the goals of the movement. And he's saying, you know, integration is fine, but that's not really what this movement is about. That he that he's so he's sort of challenging sort of a white liberal uh, perception of the movement. He's saying that uh, you know, the real goal here is for black people to be able to envision a new life for themselves and to leverage their political power um, to uplift black people. In other words, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so he's bringing that. To the movement, and and then you know the shooting of James Meredith all of a sudden provides this very unique opportunity. Now, Stick by this time doesn't see himself as as engaging in this type of mass march, right? That's kind of what they've defined themselves against. They see a, a mass march is sort of designed to bring together the various organizations and work with each other, and then to appeal to a national conscience and, and, and get media attention and do all these things. And he sees Stick's goal as much more working on the grassroots. Uh, working with local people, trying to help them help themselves. Mm-hmm. So the mass march kind of goes against his idea. But then on the other hand, Meredith shooting provides this bizarre opportunity because it gives them a chance to sort of go through Mississippi where they've done already so much organizing, and it'll give them a chance to publicize Snake's vision on a much larger scale. And they see this as a chance to also register voters, as a chance to do their kind of grassroots organizing mm-hmm. as they're moving along. So they, it becomes a hybrid for them. Right. Um, so that's what's, what Carmichael brings. And that's why they ultimately decide to, they see this as a unique opportunity that we can unveil, especially the slogan of black power on a larger scale. Uh, because, and also because they have King with them, right? And where Martin Luther King goes, that means you have yeah. people, right? People want to come see Martin Luther King. And, uh-huh. and, and, and you, you, know, and, you know, the newspaper reports uh, with people at the time, that a lot of people say like, yeah, I came up because I just wanted to see Martin Luther King. I, I, I didn't ever imagine I'd have a chance to meet him. Right. Uh, but also he brings national attention. He brings the media there, right? Mm-hmm. Wherever, wherever King goes, the media follows. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a story that a photographer told me where most of the photographers were just, uh, when the march was going along, they would just sit in the press truck that was at the beginning of the, uh, the, at, the at the head of the march uh, and just you know, keeping an eye on the leaders. And one of the other photographers, he would walk in, you know, he'd walk among the, the marchers and take, and take different kinds of photographs, more personal shots. And he asked uh, the guy who worked for UPI, you know, why don't you ever leave the press truck? He's like, I can't. I have to stay here in case King gets shot. Oh my God! Yeah, uh, so that just gives you a sense of how the, yeah. the media was really, you know, sort of centered around Martin wow. Luther King at that time. Yeah, that's boy, that's terrible. So, but before we leave Carmichael, I just want to make two things clear. So he has this slogan, "Black Power," uh, but there are two things in his program that differentiate him strongly from King. One is that for him, nonviolence is not a principle. It's a tactic, right? I mean, it's something that you use, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And he's not afraid to use. Violence. I mean, he doesn't talk about violence, but you know, he's one of these. Uh, I'm reminded of what. Um, Obama likes to say that everything is on the table, <laughs> whatever that means. So, and and then the second thing is, is that he's not an integrationist, really. He's, yeah, 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 he's just not an integrationist, and right. this is what separates him from all the white liberals who are just sure. all integrationists. He's like, and if well, you think you know, about King's core principles, right? They are uh, nonviolence as a way of life, yeah. and uh, for one of a better term, racial brotherhood, right? Yeah, the, right? The notion that we're all part of one beloved community. Right. Uh, so, black power. King never uses the phrase. Because while he can agree with aspects of it uh, and has been working toward many of those same goals, you know, black political power and, and pride in your culture and your history, and, and, he, and, he, and he really embraces those ideas, and uh, he can't say black power because to him it is a betrayal of his two key of his two key principles. Right. Of okay. Violence, okay. So, uh, um, did King know about Carmichael before he met him? Oh yes, yes. Uh, they had had contact uh, through the movement for years. You know, okay. they've been various organized campaigns together, and actually. Right around this time, uh, once because Carmichael is uh, elected to the chairmanship of, uh, of SNCC, and they're both based in Atlanta, that's their home base for both mm-hmm. organizations, uh, King and Carmichael have a, a certain friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, King has invited him to his home uh, for dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have, uh, so that on one level, the march is about their, about the way they push each other, but in other ways, it's about how they work together. They find common ground. That's also what gives them Meredith March's dynamism. Uh, if, it, if it didn't have King, it wouldn't have the same character. But if it didn't have Carmichael and Snick, it wouldn't have ultimately electrified people in Mississippi the way that it did. Right. How would you like to sit down at that table in Martin Luther King's house with, with Stokely Carmichael? Can you imagine? Of, yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> I can, and I'm fantasizing about it right now. <laughs> that would have been an interesting discussion. Yeah. So uh, they come together. And what what happens exactly? These two guys come together and tell us. Well, when you, you think about the march, it's it's full of ways in which that you know, sort of the merging of of their visions. And I don't mean to just simply put it between the two of them because this is obviously a march that involves hundreds of people and, and ultimately thousands of people. Uh, but there's all sorts of triumphs along the way. They, uh, they stage voter registration campaigns. They register people to vote. One of the the first uh, voter registration rally is in the town of Batesville. They get a man to register to vote who's 106 years old for the first time in his life. He's going to vote. Wow, he should this get is a, twice. This is a man who was born a slave. <laughs> yeah. uh, when they get to the town of Grenada, uh, there's a, you know, in basically every town in Mississippi, in the town square, there's a statue, a memorial to the Confederacy. Sure. Uh, and they put an American flag on the statue of the, Confe- of the of this Confederate soldier. And one of the speakers refers to Jefferson Davis as that joker. Uh, and this is, and you know, the whites are surrounding this rally and are just burning with with, with, yeah, with right. anger. They, they'll refer to this, James Eastland, the senator from Mississippi, referred to it as a desecration of the monument by putting an American flag on, on the monument. Uh, so there's a symbolic value there. And in Grenada, they really helped us start kickstart a movement. Uh, Meredith wanted to just go straight down Highway 51, but they detour this march into the into the Mississippi Delta because there's larger black um, populations there. Um, and that's really where Black Power gets unveiled. Uh, and then toward the end of the last week in, Missis- uh, in Mississippi, the last week, this is a three-week march, essentially. Uh, the last week in Mississippi, there's two particularly dramatic acts, both involving violence. One of them occurs in the town of Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, which is not actually not on the march route. It's in sort of uh, south-central uh, Mississippi, or excuse me, west-central Mississippi. Uh, and um, but, they go, but they take a diversion there, a group, a group of marchers take a diversion there, including King, because it is the second anniversary of the, of the murders of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Mickey Schwerner, mm-hmm. uh, who had been killed just at the beginning of Freedom Summer. Uh, and they work with the, and they'd organized in advance with the local political community. So they're going to lead this memorial march uh, from the black, uh, the black district in, in Philadelphia to the courthouse. Uh, but the problem here is that along the march, they've been, pro- they've been protected by the Mississippi Highway Patrol, the state forces, uh, when they go to off the, off the marches, basically under the control of the local police. The local police include Cecil Price, 
and and, and uh, Sheriff Rainey, who are the same uh, the same uh, police officers who are then under federal investigation for the murders of these civil rights workers, mm-hmm. and who are in fact associated, as we'll later learn, affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan. So they receive very little, very minimal protection, and what happens is that basically a mob attacks the marchers. The cars whiz by them, uh, people throw things at them, uh, uh, they throw cherry bombs at King as he's giving a speech, and people think that he's been shot. King will later say that it was the most scared he'd ever been in his life. Um, and as the marchers are, are, are have given their speeches and are leaving, um, they basically, a, a mob starts... Oh, wandering into into the march itself. Some people are, are wielding weapons like blackjacks and so on. So they're basically able to, before a full-scale riot breaks out, they're basically able to escape back into the into the black district, but it's terrifying. And they call for federal intervention. Uh, they want, you know, they want Lyndon Johnson to get involved, but Johnson essentially ignores them. Uh, by this point, he's he's grown quite alienated from the civil rights movement, and he's not associated with the Meredith March at all, because people like Stokely Carmichael are openly critical of the federal government. He doesn't see any political benefit in getting involved in this one way or the other. He can't. He obviously can't side with the marchers, but and he obviously can't side with the with the state of Mississippi, right. which is you know neither neither one is going to help him. So he's trying to remain aloof from this as much as possible. But once he refuses to use any federal protection, as we get to the last week of the march, when the marchers get to Canton, Mississippi, which is about uh, 30 miles north of Jackson, their final destination, mm-hmm. it's a few days before the end of the march. Uh, and along the way, the marchers have tried to uh, camp on land. You know, they have these tents uh, for each part. They tried to uh, set up their tents and camp on land that is in the black community that is public land. That is, uh, and they do this for very symbolic reasons, right? Black people pay taxes. They have a right to this land. It's within right. the black community. Right. You've segregated us. Let us use this land. Um, so they try to do so in Canton. They've been banned from doing so by the by the local superintendent. Uh, they do it anyway, and, there's, and they expect a confrontation when they try to get on the land, and there is none. So they start to put up their tents. The rally is huge by this time. It was up two, 3,000 people because uh, we're nearing the end of the march. Then all of a sudden, the Mississippi Highway Patrol roll up. Tons of cars in their riot gear, and they start launching tear gas. And they don't use tear gas as crowd control. They don't use it to just scatter the people. They're launching it right into the marchers themselves. People are getting hit with tear gas canisters. Yeah. It is an absolutely brutal attack. And then... The the the, patrol, the highway patrol marches right into the field and starts beating people, hitting them with nightsticks, kicking them, dragging them into ditches. Uh, in the words in the words of a Time reporter, Arlie Shard, it was like a scene from hell. Uh, and the stories, this is one of the most uh, extraordinary, most gruesome attacks within the civil rights movement. And but it doesn't get the same media attention that one year before Bloody Sunday, uh, the the Selma march across the bridge. Uh, when they had been attacked by tear gas, that became a national story, and, and Lyndon Johnson delivered a speech you know, the, where he said the words, we shall overcome, and it helped to lead to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. There isn't this, this case in Canada. So again, the federal government ignores it. Uh, it, doesn't, uh, it, doesn't, it sort of fails to rouse the consciousness of the nation because the march by this time is at least halfway associated with black militancy and with black power. Uh, so in these two sort of gruesome instances of violence, it doesn't lead, it doesn't translate into federal action in the way that we'd seen in previous marches. Mm-hmm. Tell us what, now, Meredith has been in the hospital for most of the march, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not gone the way he wanted it to go at all. No. Yeah, no, it's been hijacked. Right. Well, I mean, I, I should say he was in the hospital for a few days. He was recuperating at home uh, for a significant okay, amount I did, of time. Okay, yeah, right. But he's he'd, occasionally, he'd occasionally give a, a press conference or something like that while the march was going on, basically criticizing the march. But then he does return to the march for the, for the last few days. And he makes a point of not returning until the marchers loop back onto Highway 51, which was, again, his plan. He was never going to march in a part that wasn't part of his original plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but then he gets really angry uh, at the end of the march because uh, he had been told that he would lead the march uh, out of Canton to the next stop, which was Tougaloo College, which is a college just on the north edge of Jackson. Uh, but the marchers had already gone on without him, and he was furious at this. So the next day, he decided he was going to lead his own march from Canton to Tougaloo because he had promised people that he would. And again, this is a guy driven by his own individual initiatives. Uh, and then, uh, so he is with the march for the last few days. And Meredith is, in some ways, you know, he's a, he's a great hero at this time, right? He's the most associated with the march. He he wins the loudest cheers at the final rally. Uh, he's he's an important figure uh, in this time. It's uh, the march has resuscitated his uh, his national profile. Uh, so it's very interesting to see where where Meredith goes from here. He, uh, it he is. sort of yes. fails to exploit that political capital. Uh-huh. Uh, but he does. But he does. After I mean, he tries to have a political career, doesn't he? He does. He yeah. does. Uh, and he, he makes a series of you know. At one point, he runs as a Republican. At other points, he runs as a Democrat. There's conservative aspects to him. There's 
liberal aspects, there's yeah. radical aspects. He's a very interesting character. Yeah, he later in his life, he gets associated yeah. with uh, with conservatism on the far right. He briefly works for Jesse Helms. Jesse Helms. And yeah. then uh, in the in the 1990s, he at one point endorses David Duke, the former Klansman, wow. uh, running for political office yeah. in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, he, you know, he's a guy who lives in Jackson now, is in the heart of the black community. Mm-hmm. He's, he's uh, in some ways very well respected. He's he's led a a life that is difficult to put into boxes or into categories. Yeah, that's absolutely it's a tough true. guy to, uh, yeah. for for a historian. You, you, yeah, you, you only get a slippery grasp on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. So he's one of the the triumvirate. You say it's a book about King and Meredith and and Carmichael. So we know what happens to mm-hmm. um to, to Meredith. He has, he tries to have this political career after uh, the, mm-hmm. the march, and mm-hmm. and he, again, it, it's hard to summarize exactly what he does because he um, does not play the role that you would think someone with his uh, sort of demographics would. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and I encourage anybody who would uh, go look up James Meredith and you'll see what we mean. Mm-hmm. Um, really hard to predict. So, uh, King, uh, you can just summarize what happens to him. Well, certainly, I mean, the, the march is important for King in the sense that it, it, it sharpens his, his understanding of uh, the deep poverty in rural America in, in, in Mississippi. He's moved by some, so many of the scenes he sees. And, and, that, and this is helping to shape what will ultimately become his Poor People's Campaign that he's planned for 1968, which brings him back to Mississippi and ultimately helps to bring him back to, to Memphis because when mm-hmm. he comes to, uh, to support the sanitation workers' strike here, uh, in 1968, he's doing so, saying that this is linked to the larger goal of the Poor People's Campaign. So he returns to the scenes of the march, uh, and uh, somewhat tragically, obviously, with the, with his assassination in Memphis. Uh, but he's also resolved that a uh, they, they were going to launch for the Poor People's Campaign. They're going to have these mule trains uh, that we're going to that we're going to leave uh, from various parts of the country. And he said the one should leave from Marks, Mississippi, where he delivered a, a sermon uh, in the midst of the Meredith March, uh, and where he came back to. Uh, while planning the Poor People's Campaign and was, again, moved by the poverty that he saw. Mm-hmm. And Carmichael, the third, third of yeah, these, Carmichael. I guess, main characters, right? The, the, Mer- the Meredith March catapults him. It turns him into the basically the heir to Malcolm X in the public eye, uh, both among his black followers and among his conservative detractors. <laughs> right. uh, you know, it, and it changes SNCC because they never really had this type of charismatic leader before. It's an organization that had defined, defined itself against that sort of one signature leader. But Carmichael is using you know, his his profile to sort of uh, uh, try to elevate SNCC and to try to uh, raise money and to try to raise resources and publicize Black Power. But with the Black Power movement going in so many directions, SNCC ultimately splinters. Uh, there's a, a bizarre, ill-fated alliance with the Black Panther Party among some of the among some SNCC members that, that doesn't pan out. Carmichael moves to Africa. Uh, and develops this sort of a notion of pan-African socialism. Uh, he changes his name to Kwame Toure. He's named yeah. himself after his two main uh, 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 mentors in Africa, Seko Toure and uh, Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, and he passes away in the, in the 1990s. Yeah, he's a, it's a fascinating character. He, yeah, very fascinating. So is it, is it fair enough to say that after this moment that the, um, that the civil rights movement is split? It's you know, I call it in, in the book the last great march uh, yeah. in the sense that it's the last time that you uh, that the major civil rights organizations will come together for a common endeavor. It's the last time they'll try to launch this type of sustained demonstration that uh, is uh, designed to appeal to a national audience and get, and get national media attention. You'll never again see the organizations work together in this framework uh, again. So yeah, absolutely. In that sense, the civil rights movement uh, is is has. You know, King says at the end of the, of the march, or one of his advisors says, you know, we can never really work with SNCC again. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, a, you know, there's a creative tension that came out of the, the march, but by the end, they're too far apart. To mm-hmm. a certain. Um, so there's a, you know, the march is both a, a beautiful story and a tragic story. It's a, it's a very interesting time. Yeah, it, it is. It is kind of an amazing thing because it's it, it's one of these events that shows you the 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 the, the imp- importance of contingencies, you know, because mm-hmm. like had, um, you know, had Meredith not been shot, it, it probably would be a footnote, but yeah. I mean, everything mostly rode on that. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, um, then, you know, it got on the front page of the Washington post mm-hmm. and then Carmichael shows up and, uh, and King show up and, and that it's, you know, that it has a, that it has kind of a momentum all its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, I mean, the tensions within the civil rights movement are there, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's not like Snake didn't have the ideology that it did, and they had the slogan "Black Power," and King was king, and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, they, they, they would 
those philosophical differences that existed for years and it and had widened by sixty six. So it's not like I don't mean to just say that the march, you know, uh, made that happen. But what the march did was it basically created this. It jammed everybody together and it created this sort of three week moving laboratory of black politics yeah. where they're constantly in debate with each other and yeah. there's a national media presence and there's all this pressure uh, from you know about you know are they going to get attacked the next day by a white mob is there a, is a clan coming or how are they dealing with white officials they got to negotiate everywhere they go about what, what land they can use and where they can hold the next demonstration yeah. and I think you know in the way that we've had a conversation we've been talking about these three main characters but this is not just a book about those three people it's about hundreds of people I, I interviewed a hundred people for uh, for the book itself mm-hmm. and most of them were we're marchers of one of one stripe or another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a there's all sorts of local stories that are central to this. So when I talked mm-hmm. at the beginning about this idea of the old and the new civil rights uh, history, right? Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on local history. My argument at times in the book is that the politics of these local communities, the way they handle the Meredith March, has national implications, right? Uh, because you know what they do in Grenada or what they do in Greenwood or what they do in Canton, right? With the attack, that has massive implications for the future of black politics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Aaron, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you very much for writing the book and being on the show. I want to close the the interview uh, by asking our traditional final question on um, New Books in History, and that is, what are you you working on now? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I've never gotten that as a response. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, since I finished the original draft uh, of the book, uh, well, I've, I literally finished the first draft of the book, and then uh, my wife gave birth to our first son. Uh, you know, that next week, uh, and then and I was and I had a lot of childcare duties with him at the, uh, right at the beginning because my wife was finishing her dissertation. And then we had a second child mm-hmm. uh, soon after that, and then uh, I started to chair of the department. So yeah. I have. Uh, Failed to develop much momentum on a new project. I've been working on, an, uh, on a few essays here and there, but my next big book project is undetermined. Watch the space. Yeah, absolutely. Watch the space. So yeah. yeah, you sound like a very busy guy. So we're not. Gonna, don't don't worry about it. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that I'm sure the university is very happy uh, with your work. Very very pleased. So um, let me first say uh, uh, we've been talking with Aram Gutsuzian about. Down to the Crossroads, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Meredith March Against Fear. And let me say thank you very much for being on the uh, show, Aram. Mark, thanks so much. I always enjoy talking to you. Absolutely. And then let me say to all of our listeners, thank you very much for listening. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History and the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I hope that everybody has a great week. <laughs> <laughs>